Welcome to week three of Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. Um, we are going to be covering various topics today, and as I shared with the class last week, because of the number and nature of the topics, we're going to be by necessity limited to a broad, high-level overview. But these are very important um, doctrines and foundations of the Christian faith that as believers, we either need to be reminded of or perhaps challenged to dig deeper uh, into uh, in our times of own personal study. So as you can see, we're going to be talking about five different topics. I have varied up the order somewhat from Dr. Sproul has in his book. Uh, we're going to begin with the canon of Scripture, then talk about private interpretation, then interpreting the Bible, followed by the prophets of God and the law of God. So let's just go ahead and jump right in because we have a lot of material to cover. Canon of Scripture. Now, as a young boy growing up in the church, when I heard that word canon from my church leaders, I sat up and listened very intently because as a lover of military history, I was hopeful that I was going to get some really good tidbits. And lo and behold, I learned that it was in fact a very, very different concept. Uh, spelled differently and different concept. The term canon... Uh, as we use that word in English, is derived from a Greek word that means rule or standard. Uh, norm uh, is another word. It's used to describe the authoritative list of the books of the Bible that the church acknowledges as sacred scripture and thus our rule for faith and practice. We all want to know what rules and laws that we are subject to. I could pull up a convoy of trucks outside and fill them with our nation's laws, state, federal, local, and say, here are the laws that are in effect. But we would have all, all, of course, want to know what laws, what rules are actually applicable to me, which are controlling on my life. We know from Ecclesiastes 12.12 that of the making of many books, there is no end. And while there are many good books to read, many not-so-good books to read, and far more books that are just simply non-essential, we want to know what books must we know are the authoritative and sacred word of God. Now last week in our class we talked about the difference between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is general in both its content and its audience. It goes out to all mankind, exhibited best in creation. Creation speaks and declares the glory of God. And it communicates certain general things about God, but of course to get to know who God is, how and why we are accountable to him, his attributes, our sinfulness, all those other things, we have to have special revelation. But with the subject of the canon of scripture, the question is how do we get to the Bible as consisting of these 66 books that we have? As Dr. Sproul pointed out, uh, what we have very conveniently bound up into one book is actually a, a series of multiple books. And as you move from one book to the next, not only are you potentially changing authors, uh, you are also jumping ahead or behind centuries, you are changing original language in which it was written, you are changing cultures. But as we discussed last week in terms of what we're dealing with, we are dealing with, yes, written works of human authors, but these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit through what we call inspiration, so that what we ultimately and truly have in Latin is the vox Dei, or verbum Dei, the voice of God, the word of God in the Bible. 
Now, of course, as the Bible unfolds with these different books that were written over centuries, there was no footnote or sticker that was added to each book as it was written saying, Book 12 of 66. Please update your version of the scripture accordingly. This raises then the thorny question of how did men, as flawed, frail, sinful people, know and determine what this canon of sacred scripture is? As you may have noticed, I hope you've noticed, your Bible is split into two sections, Old Testament and New Testament. And I think it is helpful to know at the outset, while we're going to talk about some of the finer points of canonicity, it is remarkable that there is complete agreement between Catholics and Protestants on what the New Testament canon is. As much difference as there is between their two, those two groups, and there is a lot of difference, in terms of agreeing what the New Testament is, there is consensus. And even more encouraging, Protestants and Catholics also agree on what our Protestant Old Testament contains. What I mean is that the Catholics are not sitting over there saying, well, you erred by including that particular book in the canon. No, we're agreed on the 66 books of the Bible that we have in our copy of God's Word. Where we differ is the Apocrypha. What we as Protestants regard as excluded, as not part of sacred scripture. Now, the Apocrypha, as I'm sure many of you know, was written after the Old Testament was completed, before the New Testament was begun. It falls within what's called that intertestamental period. And these 14, or perhaps 16 books, depending on how you combine them, uh, are both historical and prophetic in nature, describing what was happening in Israel during that intertestamental period. And so they generally seem to match up with what you find in the Old Testament genres of narrative, poetry, uh, prophetic, or apocalyptic uh, writings. First and Second Maccabees, I'm sure many of you have heard. Those are uh, two of the books uh, that are in the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha were included in a Greek translation of what is our Old Testament. So a couple of hundred years before Christ, you have the Septuagint, a Greek translation of what was originally written in Hebrew, and that was done around 200 BC. Though as Dr. Sproul notes, there's little secular evidence to suggest that the Jews actually regarded the Apocrypha as scripture. Uh, in, in, in addition, when you look at the New Testament, authored mostly by Jews, you see that not even a single book cites the Apocrypha as scripture. There are perhaps a couple of places where you read the New Testament, you might say, well, that phrase or that terminology seems to mirror what we find in the Apocrypha, but certainly nothing like what we see where the New Testament authors and Christ himself says, as it says in the scriptures, and they pull from what is our Old Testament. Uh, similarly, if you read Jewish rabbis that came after Christ, they also do not seem to view the Apocrypha as scripture. And so throughout the Middle Ages, you kind of had this mixed stance on whether the Apocrypha uh, was scripture or not, but pre predominantly not. But then things come to a head in the Reformation. Um, due to the fact that the Apocrypha was the basis for many controversial doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, including purgatory and praying to saints and saints in heaven praying for saints on earth, things really came to a head. The Reformers revisited that issue and said, based on what we see, this should not be accepted as scripture. And the Roman Catholic Church, in response, in a counter-Reformation move, 
at the Council of Trent in, Trent in 1546 made it an official declaration that the Apocrypha was to be regarded as scripture. Um, as Dr. Sproul noted, Protestants say that the canon is a fallible collection of infallible books. The books themselves that are in the scripture is the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. We recognize, though, that the canon was created as men came together and tried to recognize that. Could it be that there is some book out there that was missed or that by right should be in the canon? Yes, but that says nothing about the scripture that is actually there that is present. That is the infallible word of God. Catholics, on the other hand, on the basis of their doctrine of church authority, say, no, 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 this is an infallible collection of infallible books. Meaning, yes, we are agreed that this is scripture, it is inerrant, it is inspired, it is in, uh, infallible, but we as the church have spoken and said that this is the canon, and therefore that declaration is also infallible. And of course, liberal critics say you're both wrong, it's a fallible collection of fallible books. Now, the Council of Trent uh, was not the first uh, canonical council. Church councils actually convened multiple times in the early centuries. Gordon. I was just wondering on that... Uh... Where it says in Revelation that if anyone adds to them, God will add the end of plagues which are written in the book. Where does that put Catholics since that's added to the 66 books that we recognize? Right. Well, they would say we're not in violation of that because the Apocrypha is Scripture. And so we're not adding to what is Scripture because they have a different definition of what Scripture is. But we would say, no, um, that actually is not Scripture. Uh, if you look at all of the evidence. But, but, then, but then it says if anyone takes away from the words of the book, right. this prophecy, God will right. take away his part from the tree of life. So where does that put it? You see what I'm saying? There's a, right. Well, and I mean, I think that there you probably are going to be dealing with what is, what is the intent? What is, are we, did we as Protestants, as the, the reformers, seek to take away from God's word? No. You know, they approached it with, we want to include everything that is God's word. We want to recognize it all. Um, and so that, that involves approaching that, that task with a lot of sobriety and humility. Um, but I don't think that either side would say that we're taken away from that. I think you're talking about something that's much more intentional um, with something like that. But it's, it's a serious question that both Catholics and Protestants should wrestle with because it is a serious thing. Yes, Whitney. Prior to the Council of Trent, was the Apocrypha treated as scripture in the Catholic Church? Uh, but you would have, it was not an officially recognized part of scripture. Uh, it was mixed, is the, the best way that I could describe it. You would have certain churches, bishops, church leaders, and certainly the, the doctrines of purgatory and so on and so forth, those developed because they were relying upon that. Um, but it was at the Council of Trent that it was formally recognized. Yeah, good question. Justin? Does it ever contradict Scripture? Well, we, we would say that it, it does in the sense that, you know, the Bible speaks about being present with the Lord. As soon as, you know, when you, when you die, you go to be with the Lord. Um, it doesn't speak about the doctrine of purgatory, but Catholics would say, well, that doesn't directly just contradict it. That's silence and... The Apocrypha fills the void of that silence. But it um, could fit together if it was accepted. Like, um, it could fit together. It wouldn't contradict scripture. 
they, right. they don't have any contradictions with Scripture and, and what the Apocrypha says, right? I mean, there are, their, their doctrine of church authority, I don't think that that stems from the Apocrypha. They look at the New Testament and our New Testament and say, well, you know, the church um, has this authority on the basis of what we both agree is Scripture. Um, I think probably, you know, some of the more significant uh, disagreements between us and Catholics differ just on our interpretation of what we both agree is scripture. Um, I don't know if that answers or Pastor Brent, if you have thoughts on that. Okay. Yeah, no, this is, this is a thorny, a thorny subject. Um, but the church did, uh, even prior to Trent and, and this issue of the Apocrypha, they had to come together in the early centuries to recognize, well, what do we regard as the canon, particularly when it came to the New Testament? Uh, because during those early centuries, the, of course, the New Testament is being written. And as it's spreading through uh, the world, as the gospel goes forth, uh, you also have error. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the lies of the enemy spreading through heretical false teachers, the Gnostics. Uh, I'll give you just one name to look up, Marcion. Uh, he was born in AD 80 and died in AD 160. He took the view that, well, he, number one, he denied the humanity of Christ. Uh, two, he said that the God the Father as revealed in the New Testament is completely different and separate from that vengeful God of the Old Testament. And oh, by the way, the Apostle Paul is the only true Apostle of Christ. So as you can imagine, that shrunk his canon uh, quite a bit. And as a result, the church leaders stepped in and say, no, that's heresy. This is the, these are the books that we should be uh, regarding as scripture, and you don't get to exclude them just because uh, you, you have a different take. Now, critics like to paint the picture of the canon as something that, well, there were thousands of possible uh, candidates for inclusion, and somehow it narrowed down to 66 books. So clearly there's got to be some sort of conspiracy theory here to keep people from knowing what they need to know, i.e. those excluded books. So it might be helpful to know that there were actually very few books in what is our canon that were actually a matter for dispute. You know, do we include these or do we not? Um, from, the, from the books that uh, are in, Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude and Revelation, those were the books that there was a little bit more discussion on. And then some books that were obviously not included uh, that also got a lot of discussion were 1 Clement, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the Didache. So interesting books to read. I would encourage you, you can find them online if you just Google um, those. Interesting ones to read, but um, were not included in the canon. Something that Dr. Sproul emphasizes is that the church did not create the canon per se, but rather really what we were doing was recognizing uh, those books that bore the marks of canonicity and were therefore authoritative within the church. Another Latin word for you is recipimus. We receive. What were the marks of canonicity? Well, it was apostolic authorship or endorsement. Um, two, being recognized as authoritative within the early church. And three, being in harmony with the books that were undoubtedly part of the canon. As I mentioned, there were really a minority of books that were even up for discussion on, on either side. So they were looking for general harmony with what you read in the rest of Scripture. Um, I know that's a lot. 
uh, and not really enough on such an important topic. Uh, the book that I would recommend is the one that I have right here, uh, John Frame's Doctrine of the Word of God. Um, a very good book. If the church library does not have it, I might be willing to let you borrow it for a million dollars. So keep that option in mind if you're serious. But let's jump on now to private interpretation. I'm sure we're doing okay in terms of time. Now, we talked about the Reformation, of course, with respect to the canon. And the Reformation again comes into play when we're talking about this uh, truth of private interpretation. Um, the Reformation gave to the church a translation of the Bible in the common language and to each believer the right and responsibility of private interpretation of the Bible. Now, breaking that down, of course, translation is an important part of that. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, some Aramaic. The New Testament in Koine Greek, which was the common tongue of the time. And there were translations of the Old Testament prior to Christ. I mentioned the Septuagint, which was the translation into Greek. Uh, and they say that there was a translation into Aramaic around the time of the Babylonian captivity. But the need for translation was not as great in the Old Testament because you really had the word of God existing within one singular ethnic group of people. It was the Jewish scriptures. But of course, with the gospel, you have the gospel going out to the far corners of the world, to every tribe and tongue and nation, which of course made translation into those languages necessary um, because they had no knowledge. They didn't speak Greek or Hebrew. Now what the Catholic Church uh, did for centuries leading up to the Reformation really was fence the scripture, um, driving a wedge between clergy and laity and saying, you know, you as lay people are dependent upon us as the clergy to read and interpret God's word for you. From about the third century uh, AD on, you have Latin as the primary language of the church. Uh, the mass was and still is administered in Latin. And you had the translation of the Bible into uh, Latin, what's called the Vulgate. And there was even a restriction on non-Latin versions of the Bible for the clergy and any Bible ownership whatsoever uh, by the lay people. The reformers said, no, no, God's word is for everyone. Every believer should have the right and responsibility of private interpretation. And so you have great men like uh, Martin Luther, William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, who labored and sacrificed um, their lives to translate the scripture into their countrymen's own native tongue. Well, if you are turning everyone loose with their own copy of the Bible, what role then does church tradition play? Uh, church tradition is instructive as a, as a guide. We, we don't argue with that. But it does not have an equal authority with the scripture. And this is one of those areas where we differ markedly with Roman Catholics. We say sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now these next two bullets, private interpretation is not a license for subjectivism and that the principle of private interpretation carries with it an obligation to seek what is the correct interpretation of the Bible. Um, this is something we see and battle a lot with in our day. Uh, people saying, not really, what does this mean? What does this mean to me? Or what do I want this to mean? Um, that is not our goal uh, in private interpretation. We want to understand what is the correct meaning. We want to know what God is saying. Now, perhaps if, last week we uh, talked about this uh, passage from 2 Peter, 
uh, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of the scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you breeze through that without really parsing your words, you say, oh, no private interpretation, right? But what is Peter talking about there? He's talking about the origin of Scripture, that Scripture did not originate from someone's own private interpretation. He's not talking about how we as individuals approach and study and seek to understand and interpret God's word. Uh, as I noted with the canon, it is important, of course, that we approach with a great deal of sobriety and humility uh, this subject of private interpretation because we are dealing with the word of God and we want to um, handle it rightly. But positively, we know that we have the Holy Spirit to guide us uh, as we seek to understand. Further, we know from Scripture that God has actually specifically gifted uh, different members of the body as preachers and as teachers, um, men who can help us understand what is God's Word. That isn't limited to our day and age, too. Uh, thanks to works that have been written down, you have commentaries, you have statements of faith, confessions, uh, that can aid in our own interpretation. But what all of us as believers should be looking for is a desire to understand this ourselves. Not simply say, well, they say that the Bible says that. I don't really know. Sounds good to me. I guess I'll go with it. No, you and I need to wrestle with this book ourselves. Now, there will be times, of course, within the parameters of Orthodox Christian faith, within the clear confines of the gospel, that your view on something might change. Uh, views on eschatology or the end times is a prime example where people, as they study and as they seek to understand, their view and their conviction on a particular uh, stance can change. But going back to our summary, um, although each uh, biblical uh, interp or I'm sorry, each biblical text may have multiple applications, there really is just one correct meaning. Uh, as an example of this, I want to consider uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. This difference between, okay, what is the interpretation uh, and what can the application be from a correct interpretation? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Skipping down to verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he uh, raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Interpreting this, there is only one correct meaning to Christ was raised from the dead. It is not that, well, he swooned, he swooned and woke up, Muslims. It is not, postmodern liberals, well, his ideas of love and kindness live on after he died. No, there is one correct interpretation. Christ rose from the dead. And then as Paul goes on to demonstrate, there are numerous applications that we can take from that. Because Christ is raised from the dead, because that is true, 
Our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. We're not misrepresenting God. Our faith is not futile. We are not still in our sins. So on and so forth. Now, of course, we have to be careful with application too. We can't say, well, I know what this means and now I can apply it however I like. Uh, There is a meme out there that I get a kick out of every time I see it. And it's somebody with a pickle jar. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And his wife is standing in the background. She says, twist the pickle jar, Bill, not scripture. (laughs) You have to be careful with application. But if we understand what is the correct meaning, correct application is that much easier. So here's our next subject, and that is interpreting the Bible. Of course, very closely related to private interpretation. And I'm just going to throw all of these up here uh, rather than fling them up one at a time. Uh, The Bible is its own interpreter. Uh, Think about appeals to authority and how we do that in life. I do that in my day job as a lawyer a lot. The Constitution in the United States of America is the supreme and preeminent law of our country. Um, Any federal, state, or local law that gets passed could be challenged in court theoretically as unconstitutional. This violates someone's right to freedom of speech, to freedom of religion. And that could proceed through a series of court challenges, of hierarchies of courts, and it would potentially get all the way up to the Supreme Court, which is the highest court in our nation. As Dr. Sproul said, the Bible is its own Supreme Court. There is nothing higher than the Bible to appeal to because it is the Word of God. We don't appeal to nature or creation. We don't appeal to a pope. We don't appeal to human reasoning, philosophy, emotion, or sentimentality. The Bible speaks. The chief rule of biblical interpretation is that sacred scripture is its own interpreter, i.e. we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. There is a part that we do not understand. We go looking through the rest of the pages of scripture to understand and hopefully uh, come to understand. We must not set one passage against another to create a contradiction. We dealt with this in our class from last week, dealing with the differences between paradox, contradiction, and mystery. Quick summary, paradox is a seeming contradiction that can be resolved upon closer scrutiny. Uh, Contradiction is something that cannot be resolved. And there's the law uh, of logic called the law of non-contradiction. A cannot also be non-A at the same time and in the same respect myself as, as an example. I cannot say, I am Stephen Freeland, and I am not Stephen Freeland. Those two things cannot be true at the same time and in the same respect. Then there are things of mystery, things that seem like they are contradictory, but we just don't have enough information. Within the pages of Scripture, God has chosen to keep those secret and deep things to himself. Maybe someday he will let us in to some of those things uh, in glory, Many things will always be beyond our comprehension, I think. So with biblical interpretation, we want to understand what does it actually say. We don't throw out logic. We must interpret it literally, which means, literal interpretation means, as it is written, as the author intended. Um, Without naming names or providing labels, uh, I have to smile on this uh, uh, concept of literal interpretation because the Christian college that I attended, I had some who would say to me, rather condescendingly, well, Stephen, we believe in a literal 
1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth because we believe in reading the Bible literally. And uh, to be fair to them, my own views on the end times have evolved and changed. I'm sure theirs have too. But we have to be careful about selective literal interpretation. After all, what is the literal interpretation of one day with the Lord? This is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And do any of us believe that Jesus is literally a lamb, a door, and or a vine? Okay. Rightly handling the word of truth means that we recognize what is prophecy, what is narrative, what is doctrinal declarations or practical application and, and, and admonitions from uh, the apostles. Um, as we discussed last week, again, paradox, mystery, contradiction. We have to have right understanding of those as we go through the scriptures and seek to understand them rightly. Any questions on that? I've got a couple more subjects here, and we've got 10 minutes, so I think we'll be okay. But let's talk about the prophets of God. Old Testament prophets were agents of divine revelation. Once again, um, we're coming to this uh, reality that in Scripture we have this divine and human dynamic. Certainly, the presence and the involvement of humanity, but at its root, at its core, what we have is God speaking, God working, and he did that uh, in the Old Testament through the prophets. God has a message to communicate to man. And he could have, if he wanted, blazoned that across the sky. He could have tattooed that on our skin. But he chose to speak through human messengers. Yes, he spoke directly to his prophets, like Moses and Elijah, face to face even. But it was not that they would then be in this super special select group of having all of God's revelation nobody else would know about it. No, he spoke to them to speak to others, and to ultimately have written down what we have in the Old Testament in the prophets. This is something that the Jews at the time of Christ recognized, of course, that their sacred scriptures consisted not just of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, handed down through Moses, but also the prophets. Listen to these verses, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I am come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Then in Luke 24, 27, talking about Jesus' discourse with the two men who were on the road to Emmaus, Luke tells us that Jesus explained everything written about himself in the scriptures, beginning with the law of Moses and the books of the prophets. And then in verse 44 of the same chapter, when Christ has appeared to his apostles, he said to them, These are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Unless we think that the prophets were only to benefit Israel in the Old Testament, Paul in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says this, And he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Prophecy involved both foretelling and forthtelling. Okay? Foretelling, we're talking about events in the future that have not yet come to pass. 
Fourth telling is present declarations of truth. Thus says the Lord. We see both. Elijah said that it wouldn't rain, a future event, and it didn't. Isaiah foretold the coming of Christ, who would suffer and die for the sins of his people, and Christ did. The prophets declared also the truth for what it was, usually in the face of spiritual wickedness or apostasy in Israel. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses did both. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses predicted that coming greater prophet than himself, which of course was Christ, but Moses also gave the marks of a false prophet, a truth that God was giving to his people through Moses so that Israel could rely on that truth from that time forward. Moses said in verses 21 through 22 of Deuteronomy 18, And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the, word ha- that the Lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord? Moses says this, If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Another truth about prophets is that they were reformers of Israelite worship and life. They were not revolutionaries, religious anarchists, people who were trying to uh, discredit uh, the uh, the worship of God that God himself declared in the law. They didn't condemn or attack God's precepts. You know, it's time for us to move past the law. It's time for us to, uh, you know, insert whatever radical idea it was. No, it was a call to go back. As as Dr. Sproul said, it was to purify, not destroy. It was to reform, not replace. Uh, He also notes that the prophets, as you read them in the pages of the Old Testament, they were deeply concerned about the social justice that uh, needed to be present in Israel. Uh, They were the conscience of Israel, if you will, trying to remind them, remember what's right, remember what's true, return to that, be obedient to Yahweh. Uh, They were serving notice on the people when they were in violation of God's law. Now, only those who were directly called by God uh, had authority to be his prophets. Uh, They didn't inherit that office from their father. They did not get elected to it. Uh, And false prophets were a regular problem in Israel. Uh, They related their own dreams, their own visions, telling people what they wanted to hear. Uh, Three passages that we don't have time for, but that I'd give to you are 1 Kings 22, uh, Jeremiah 28, and Ezekiel 13. If you read those passages, you see false prophets telling kings what they want to hear. You're going to succeed. You're not going to die. Um... True prophets declaring what God actually said and what actually came to pass, and then persecution uh, of those true prophets for speaking the truth. And then, of course, again, unless we think that this is just an Old Testament concern, we have Christ in Matthew 7.15 saying, Beware of false prophets, which come to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. The New Testament epistles also make very clear that false prophets and false teachers will increase more and more. We as the church must be on our guard. Last thing on uh, prophets, you've probably heard of major prophets and minor prophets. Uh, They are so designated according to the volume of their written works. Uh, Isaiah is obviously much longer and larger than uh, uh, the book of Hosea. Both are prophets. 
says nothing about the importance of those works or the value or the level of inspiration, just the volume of the written work that was there. And lastly now, the time that we have remaining, we're going to talk about the law of God, certainly something that we find within the canon of Scripture. Um, but before we talk really about uh, the moral law of God that's declared in Scripture, we should remember that our God is a God of law and order across the board. And that extends to his physical universe. Dr. Sproul, of course, uh, as you note on the screen, gives gravity as one example of the laws of nature. But there's also laws of mathematics. There's laws of logic. I shared with you the law of non-contradiction. A cannot be non-A at the same time and in the same respect. Could you imagine living in a world without these types of laws? When you step out your door, you don't know whether the law of gravity is going to be in effect or not. Thankfully, as Paul said in Acts 17, in God, we live and move and have our being. Now, we don't have a choice but to comply with the law of gravity. God's moral law, on the other hand, is where man has hopelessly gone astray in disobedience apart from the saving mercy and grace of God. As we've noted, we have an entire Pentateuch of law, but if you condense that down, uh, God's moral law is exhibited in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. But if you condense it down even further, you have Christ saying, when asked what is the first and greatest commandment, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. If you have that commandment down, then you will obey the Ten Commandments out of loving obedience to the God who has issued those, including those commandments that have a very direct bearing on our relationships with one another. And Jesus summed that up with, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, Christ said, these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. It's important to remember, uh, points two and three here, that God has authority to impose obligations upon his creature. He is God, I'm stating the obvious here. We are his creatures. It is his authority to impose obligations upon us. But also, number three there, God acts according to the law of his own character. You already knew that I... Uh, Grew up liking the military. I also liked um, westerns, watching westerns. I remember one uh, movie in particular where there was a bank robbery going on. And the robbers unexpectedly have the sheriff and his deputies show up and start walking towards the front door of the bank. And one of the robbers looks out, sees that the sheriff is approaching, turns to his companions and says with wide eyes, it's the law. Now what did he mean by that? Did he mean that the written criminal code was walking in the door, or to get even more esoteric, that uh, concepts and principles of criminal justice were floating around outside? Of course not. The sheriff was the human representative of the law, there to enforce the laws of that jurisdiction, laws against theft and murder and the like, laws that we know ultimately find their basis in God's law, in the character of God, and not an evolutionary might-makes-right survival of the fittest mantra. Dr. Sproul points out that God is a law unto himself. He acts in accordance with his own moral character. He's never arbitrary or capricious. He always does what is right. So for us, it's important for us to know that God's law flows out of his character. 
He has authority to, uh, and the right to bind us as his creatures to obedience and to punish disobedience. We are not autonomous. We're not self-ruled. We are ruled by another. God is our ruler, whether we choose to recognize that or not. This goes back again to last week. Uh, we have what is called immediate general revelation. We talked last week about the difference between immediate general rate, uh, revelation and immediate general revelation. What is it mediated by? You have certainly truth that is mediated through scripture. Um, you have it mediated through um, creation that we see and we take in with the senses. But Paul talks in Romans 2, 14 through 15, about Gentiles who have the law of God written on their hearts, not mediated through something. It's innate. Um, and that is true. We say that God's law is written on the human heart. They are accountable. Well, what about what Paul said in Romans 6, 14? You are not under the law, but under grace. Does that mean we don't have any enduring relationship to the law? Well, remember those rules on interpreting the Bible. We don't get to twist scripture to suit what we want. We have to receive the whole counsel of God for what it says. And when we do that, when we consider scripture in its totality, we see that there is a difference between what Dr. Sproul called absolute law and temporary law. If you look at the nation of Israel, and then you look at the revelation of the New Testament, you see that some laws were intended for a temporary period of time. Ceremonial laws, dietary laws, which the scripture in the New Testament through Christ declares would and could be set aside. Christ declared all foods clean, and he reaffirmed that to Peter right before he went into Cornelius' house. He had the sheet, God had the sheet drop down from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But other laws, they stem from God's character. It is always contrary to God's character to have murder, theft, pride, covetousness, sexual immorality of all types, and so on. Those are and continue to be contrary to God's law as revealed in the Old Testament first, but as reaffirmed in the New Testament. The important thing for us to remember is that God is our authority. Only God has authority to do away with his law. When he speaks, we listen and we obey. Well, that brings us to the end of the class. Going a little bit over, but are there any questions before we end? Haven. I'm sorry, I missed the beginning a little bit. When you were talking about infallible collection of infallible books, mm -hmm. you said that's a Protestant? Yes. Belief? Yes. And then, so what is that, how does that impact our belief in the sufficiency Right. Um, so when, when we say that it is a fallible collection of infallible books, the books themselves, when you are in the scriptures, this is the self-declaring, self-authenticating word of God. What is declared in here is truth. We can accept it. We must accept it. We must base our lives upon it. We do not believe that as humans try to, over the course of history, understand what is this canon of scripture, we did not somehow become ourselves infallible. God does not promise that in his word. Okay, that, for example, if you're a translationist or if you're a copyist, every time I go 
to type out and copy God's word. There's not something supernatural that happens to me and all of a sudden I become incapable of erring, like missing a word, mistranslating something like that. Human infallibility does come into play when it comes to copying, translation, anything beyond the original manuscripts, the first when they were originally written. Um, and we'd say the same thing is true as humans try to recognize the canon. Um, so infallible in the sense that is it possible that we missed a book? Yes. In, in theory, yes, it is possible. However, we would say that based on what we do have, what we do see in the canon of Scripture, that our God is a God who preserves his word. He has made sure that despite every effort of Satan and our enemies to stamp out the word of God, to destroy it, to repress it, he has preserved his word. And he has given us in his word all things that we need for life and godliness. So do we need to be afraid as believers that, well, we don't have what we need. This is insufficient. We're going to show up before the judgment seat of God someday, and he's going to say, well, I would have let you in, but your canon of scripture was not complete. You had an There was some other little thing that was added to the gospel that you didn't know about, and you're all out of hope. No. We believe that what we have in the canon, while we're not saying we were infallible, and recognizing it, what is there is the self-declared, self-authenticating word of God, and it is sufficient for all things that we need in life and godliness. Pastor yeah, I would just remind people of the, um, the message that Logan gave, the history and reliability of scripture back in August, and we did message if you didn't hear that, or to go back and review Good point. All right, well, let me go ahead and close us in prayer. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that you have spoken, that you have spoken your truth, and that you have preserved your truth for us. Oh, Father, we thank you for your Son, that he came to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the law and the prophets, to live that perfect, righteous, sinless life, and to die as our perfect sacrifice. By his wounds we are healed, and we give you praise and thanks for that. I ask that you would bless um, our hearts and minds as we go into worship. And throughout this week, Lord, as our minds return to the truth that we're about to hear and the truth um, from your word that we even considered in our short time this morning, I pray that you would encourage, uplift, uh, and build up every believer who is present here. And if there's anyone here who does not know you, may they bow the knee to you. Even this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.